0: I'm going to begin with prayer this morning, and um, one of the things I'm praying for, I, I have to, my understanding of y'all comes in many ways through my understanding of myself, and I, uh, I can be so easily distracted from things that matter. I bought a scooter yesterday, and a couple things are distracting. First of all, I, I put about eight miles on it, and it was one of the most, it was probably eight of the most delightful miles I've ever put on a vehicle. It was really pretty awesome, but it's broken. <laughs> I didn't crash or anything. It's just not working, and it's brand new. It's got 12 miles on it, so I'm pretty aggravated. So the reason I share that is because I can be distracted with stuff that really won't matter much in eternity, and I know that some of y'all are dealing with things that are far more distracting than a scooter. So if I can be distracted with something like that, I know that y'all can be, and uh, so my prayer as I begin this morning is for a divine focus on something that really matters, just kind of the, some spirit-led, spirit-fueled division between stuff and activities and issues and ultimate reality, so that's, that's what I'm praying for, for me and for y'all this morning, And I'm also praying for your attentiveness this morning in what I will tell you is just a pure worship sermon. There's no three steps to happy anything at the end of this. What we walk away with from the message this morning is hopefully a grander or a better view of a grand gospel and an incredible Lord that changes us from the inside out. So a lot of the issues that you bring today and a lot of issues that we can teach to and preach to are affected and impacted from the inside out. So I'm going to pray about that. Just pray for just a real engagement, not as a consumer, not as someone who wants to be entertained. And that's true of many ages. uh, But as someone who wants to worship, someone who wants to sit at the feet of Jesus and engage truth. That's what I'm going to pray for this morning. Let's pray. Lord, in these next few minutes, just pray for an attentiveness that's beyond any one of us. Even the most carefree and trouble-free of us can be distracted with small things, and I confess my tendency toward those things and my um, just my ease in which I can be drawn off things that really matter. I pray for me as I engage this word and express this, this message this morning that you will arrest me with the gravity of sitting in your throne room at your feet engaging something that will matter in eternity and that everything else will pale. I pray that for me, I pray that for everybody here this morning. Lord, I pray that we can come as worshipers this morning. I pray for all ages this morning, from the kids that are in here to the youth, youth who might be thinking about activities this afternoon, adults who might be thinking about ball games or activities. Just pray that you will arrest us with the gravity of engaging truth that gives life, and the absence of which results in death. I pray that we can... Connect with the the gravity of what we're doing here this morning. That we're not getting our church on, but we're engaging the living God. With timeless, in, engaging a timeless, static, incredible, life-giving message. Lord, I pray for that in this morning. This, this, this people just arrest us with the gravity of what we're about to do. Lord, also this morning I want to lift, lift up uh, Roger uh, Ratliff of uh, van lord i pray for him and his family lord i pray that this family is truly enjoying you i pray for him in his study time that he's being wrecked that he's being undone and disassembled and that he's being reassembled into a functional useful instrument of glory and gospel and grace and wisdom as he shepherds that flock lord i pray for that church that uh, you will grow that church into be in being christ-centered worshipers Alongside us, the same prayer, Lord, that you will just take off the shingles of consumerism, of church attendance, and arrest us with an identity as a people. And arrest us with the gravity of engaging you week by week with a message of life and hope. Pray that we can serve alongside this church, guard us from ever having a spirit of competition. Lord, we want the best for them for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We had some folks over for dinner the other night, and uh, we're kind of out of the news lately. I need, We need to get the newspaper. We don't watch the TV anymore, and um, so we miss out on some of the news. But somebody shared with us over dinner the other night about this tribe that was discovered in Brazil. Anybody see read or see that, hear about that? Unknown tribe. Anthropologists didn't know about them. And from what, the way they reacted to this plane flying over, they didn't know about any, anybody outside their own little tribe or maybe their neighboring tribes. They didn't know anything about civilization. They've likely been living the way that they are living for thousands of years. I was thinking about that tribe and thinking about what truth and wisdom is like among that tribe. I would suspect that there are wise men... And elders among that tribe who think they've got a grasp on life as they're sitting around beating on drums or eating rabbit or something, <laughs> painting their faces and shooting the bows and air or shooting arrows with their bows, that they're likely some of them that really think, man I've got a handle on things I've got a handle on truth, I've had life experiences I've listened to my forefathers, so I think I got things figured out. And then one day, a plane flies overhead, (coughs) and the way these guys react to that show that they don't have a handle on life and truth and reality. Because the pictures that they took of these guys as they're flying over them in the plane is they're all gathered around with their bows and arrows, and they're shooting arrows at the plane. I mean, they're painted like red and black, and man, it's war. You can just imagine they're sitting around, and they're like, what's that noise? Hmm. Never heard that before. Sounds like it's getting closer. Honey, get the bow. (laughs) Bring the arrows. Quick, let's paint for war. There it is, a big shiny bird. Let's kill it and eat it. I'm just trying to imagine what these guys are thinking as they're connecting with that. And what they're proving is that despite the fact that there may be many of them that think they've got sage wisdom among them and an understanding of reality, they really (laughs) are in the dark about the way the world is working. And they prove it by the way they reacted to the plane. I was thinking about these guys, and I was thinking that someday all of us will find, when we understand fully the wonderful complexities and mystery of our gospel, and when we see our Lord face to face, that the collision between these two worlds here, where an ancient tribe collides with a shiny state-of-the-art plane Shoot the arrows at it. That sort of collision pales in comparison to the collision that we will experience when we see our Lord face to face. Even the most sage of us. He is that wonderful and that complex and that mysterious and that amazing. But where I want to go this morning (coughs) as we begin this message, before we even climb into John chapter 13, I want to encourage you to think rightly. What I'm developing here in these first few minutes is I want you to appreciate that the glimpse for us tribesmen to ultimate reality is through the pages of this book. That we can engage what really is through the pages of this book. Even the most sage among us may think we've got things figured out, but this will be the only access to real ultimate truth, timeless, static, immovable reality, truth. We will understand truth to the degree in which we feast on lots of this book. I used to feel bad about having people turn to a lot of passages during a sermon. Years ago, when I first started preaching, I'm like, man, I'm having them turn to two or three passages. They're going to get tired. And now I'm like, I don't care. If you're tired, man, that's truth. We're bathing in it. We're swimming in it. We're neck deep in it. And we're changed by it. So we'll swim together. I used to feel bad about it. I don't anymore because we will understand truth to the degree in which we feast on lots of this book. Now, the way the Western mind works, I've thought about how I process things and how people tend to process things, is we interpret truth by what we think. It goes back to rationalism where the guy climbed out of the Dutch oven for a few days and says, I think, therefore I am. And that's infected infected us and impacted us in the degree in which we process things and truth by, if we can get our head around it, then it must be really true. And if we can't get our head around it, and if it doesn't seem reasonable, then it must not be true. So it's our thinking and our reason that defines truth. But the Christian mind is different. We think and operate differently. Our mind doesn't determine truth any more than Chief Sakatoa's minds determines the truth about a shiny bird. Our minds don't determine truth. For the Christian, the truth develops and renews and shapes the mind. We think completely different from the world. Reason comes from this. We use our minds to understand this. We don't take this or we don't filter this through our reason. We filter our reason through this. We understand our reason and how we think, and we interpret the way we think in our hearts, and we discern the, the deep inner recesses of our hearts through the lens of this truth. So it's working from a very, very different direction. The truth, the word, shapes and renews our minds. Thankfully, truth is out there whether our minds can get it or not. That's hard for the Western mind. I was thinking about it sort of like physics. I've taken some physics classes, but I'm no expert at physics. Thankfully, physics, whether they work or not, isn't dependent on whether I can understand it or not. If that were true, then we wouldn't throw the ball in the backyard. We wouldn't be spinning around the sun right now. I'm thankful that it works regardless of whether I understand it or not. And truth is the same way. Just because you don't understand it, and maybe even because you don't, even in spite of the fact that you don't like it or it doesn't seem reasonable, does not make it any less true. Some of you can think back to before you began to follow Christ, where you first heard the gospel and you're like, (laughs) you kidding me? But now you look back and you know that that truth was outside of you, but it was still there. Although you couldn't get your head around it, did not make it any less true. So where I'm urging you to go this morning is I want you to think rightly before we engage this message. Because there's going to be some truth exposed, and I'm going to call it ultimate truth exposed, that will be difficult for some of you. Not all of you. Some of you go, well, yeah, no duh. But some of you go, oh, that just doesn't compute. But I charge you, I beg you with the Christian mind to let this word shape how you think, not to mutilate this word by thinking it to pieces. You go the other direction, from here to here. I urge you as a Christian with a Christian mind to rather than embracing Scripture through the filter of your mind, instead let Scripture shape how you think. These words are ultimate truth, and it is our task just to believe like a bunch of kids with childlike faith. It says it? Okay. I believe it. Okay, all that intro for John chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, this Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand, Pete. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet, Jesus, or Jesus. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Pete, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to, you, say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he's speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. night. What we've been doing the last couple of weeks is we've been considering Judas. And we've been doing like one of those crime movies or like those missing person movies. I don't remember what all the names of those are, where they put the guy's face or the kid's face or whoever. Let's just imagine the bad guy. It's one of the bad guy shows. Put his bad guy picture up there at the top of the bulletin board. And then they start throwing the facts up there and they start to try and piece together the story of what really happened. So what we've been doing the last few weeks is we've been putting Judas's picture up there, and we've been throwing these facts up there about Judas to try and understand the dynamics. The first, facts, the first fact that we gathered on Judas is found in verse 2 there. It's an early translation or an early manuscript that translates verse 2, The devil had already made up his mind that Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, would betray him. Now, I know that's very different from what you have in your Bible. Be okay with an early manuscript having a little bit different meaning there. Basically, what that's saying there is that Judas had a bullseye on his back. Simon said, I'm going to use him. He's going to be my man, so we can put that on the board. Right under Judas's picture, we got it right under there that Satan had put it in his heart. Judas is going to be my man that I'm going to use to betray Jesus. The next thing we can put on the board is we know this that Jesus washed all the disciples' feet. It doesn't say that he washed some of their feet. So in fact, the fact that he washed Judas' feet is a picture of him loving his enemies, that he even washed the feet of the one that would kiss him the next morning in betrayal. We also know that Judas was not clean. It tells us that in verses 10 and 11. This same Judas may have cast out demons in the name of Jesus. This same Judas may have passed out loaves and fishes on the hillside next to the Sea of Galilee. The same Judas may have looked through the darkness and the fog to see Jesus high step in the high seas and going, oh, What is that, an apparition? This same Judas may have preached Christ. He may have had people repent in faith. This same Judas sat at the table of the ministry, Christ's ministry, for three years. The Alpha ministry, the sweetest ministry that the world has ever known before or since from the Alpha minister. And it did not cleanse him. For those of us who are given over to method, man, if we can just get the right method. If we can get the right program, if we can get the right system, if we can get the right plan in place, then we can really impact darkness. You've got to engage something like that, that this guy sat at the table with the sweetest ministry that's ever been or ever will be, and it didn't change it. He would not be cleansed through the work of the cross. We also know that his betrayal was prophesied. We also know that he had literally eaten the bread of the ministry for three years, that ministry. We also know that his betrayal troubled Jesus. Jesus didn't just kind of laugh. Oh, I knew this was going to happen. He left him troubled. We put him all on the board. We can also put up on the board that the other disciples did not suspect him. I would like to think that Judas walked around with a Sam Cobra look on his face, a scowl, and wore a black hat. He just looked like the bad guy from the very beginning. But I think he must have looked like, just like the rest. Because they spent three years with him and they had no idea that he was the one that would betray him. In fact, he may have been the most trusted among them as a treasurer. We also know that Satan entered Judas. We also know that Christ told either him or Satan, I don't know which, maybe it's both. He told him, go ahead and go what you're going to do and do it quickly. And then we know from John, it must have hurt him to write these words. I can't imagine that John wouldn't have known Judas well after walking with him for three years. That he wouldn't have been heartbroken as he wrote these words about, Jesus, about Judas leaving the table in verse 30. He received the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. John's not a detailed guy. Luke is the detailed guy. John, is when he used light and dark, And images like that, they are illustrations and images of realities. And for him, this must have been a terrible dark night of the soul to recollect the night where his friend left the table and betrayed his Lord. Put those things on the board right under Judas's picture. We can also put that in the wee hours, he shows up at the Garden of Gethsemane with the priests, the Pharisees, and the soldiers to apprehend Christ, and that he betrays his Lord. He betrays his Lord. That's a key word. He betrays him with a kiss. Put it all on the board. It's not quite all the story, but it's all I want to share with you right now before I introduce you to another person, a man named Peter. We're going to build a board for Peter this morning. We've got Judas's board right over here. We're going to put Peter's board right over here. Put Peter's picture right up top, imaginary picture, Sam Cobra, probably not, but just imagine what Judas might have looked like. Put Peter's face right up here, crime board. Here's some things that we know about Peter. We know that like Judas, he was one of his disciples. Most of you know that. Turn to John chapter 6. I want to show you something else we can know about Peter. John chapter 6, verse 65. I want to give you a little bit of context here. Jesus has just fed the multitudes... He's crossed the Sea of Galilee and high step in the high seas where they've looked through the winds and the waves and darkness and they saw Jesus walking on the water. The crowds follow him around the Sea of Galilee. And then Jesus starts preaching to him and he starts sharing things with them. And then he starts sharing some controversial truths. And here's one of those controversial truths in verse 44 He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent him draws that person to Jesus. Hear what that's saying. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father says, okay, I'm going to draw him to Jesus. Another controversial teaching is down in verse 54. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh, that word in the original language is the word munches. (laughs) That's that's, an English translation. Gnaws. Chews. Whoever gnaws on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Another controversial teaching. And then here's the third controversial teaching in verse 65. It says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one comes to the Son unless he's dragged, drawn. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood to inherit eternal life. And no one comes to the Son unless it is granted him by the Father. Three controversial truths. And here's the next verse. It says, after this, after these controversial truths, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. If you really listen to what those verses are saying, you can imagine they said, I don't like a God that sounds so deterministic. I don't like a God that's going to say that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. I don't like a God that's going to say, I can't, no one can come to Jesus, my son, unless I grant it to him. I'd like a little more say-so in the whole thing. I don't know if I'm up for that sort of God. So it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They're shooting at the the shiny plane. They're shooting arrows at the shiny plane. So so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Hear those words again from Peter. We're about to put another detail on the board about Peter. we got Judas over here. we got Peter over here. This controversial teaching. Jesus turns to Peter. He says, Peter, what are you going to do? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The thing that we can put on the board here about Peter is that he's after Christ for his words and for his teaching and for the truth, not for his tricks. He just walked on the water hours earlier. He just fed the multitudes the day before. Peter didn't say, Lord, where else are we going to go? You give us good bread and fish. Lord... Where else are we going to go? You do great tricks, walking on wind and waves. Pretty amazing. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So contrast, Judas over here, the details that we know about Judas, and these details over here with Peter. Peter's after Jesus, not for his tricks, but for his truth. That's going to be key. The next thing we know is from John chapter 13, a passage we read this morning. Jesus comes up to Peter, he's going to wash his feet, and Peter objects. Here's what he says. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So we can put those things on this board over here for Peter that he had reverence for Christ. I'm convinced that's why he didn't want this teacher, this one that he says, you're the Lord. You're the one that was promised to kneel and wash his own feet. Are you kidding me? Not my dirty feet. You'll never do that, Jesus. So put this over here that he has reverence for Christ, but also put it on the board that he is zealous for Christ. For when Christ says, unless I wash your feet, you have no share with me. Okay, here's my hands and here's my head. Here's my old crusty, dirty elbows. Here's my armpits. Give me a bubble bath. If that's what it takes to be, have a share with you, I'm there. So he's zealous too. Put it on the board. He's one of the disciples. It's up there. He's after Christ for his teaching more than his tricks. He's also reverent for Christ, and he's zealous for Christ. He's not just getting his church on, he's hungry for this Christ. And then a new passage that we haven't read in chapter 13, verse 36. Jesus has just shared a new commandment that we're going to engage Sunday after next, a new commandment to love one another. And Simon Peter says to him, this is the hours before he goes to the cross. Jesus has been talking about his hour has come. He's been given all these these almost fatalistic statements and fatalistic comments and observations. And Simon Peter says to him, Lord... Where are you going? Just hours before, all of Jerusalem was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They want to make you king, Lord. Where are you going with all this talk of this being the last hour? And all that kind of stuff. Peter, being the forthright, outspoken guy, says, he's probably saying what all the other disciples are thinking. Jesus, where are you going? You're saying that you're going someplace where no one can follow you. Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me, not once, not twice but three times so we could add it to peter's board we got first of all that he's a disciple we know that we also know that he's up there he's after christ for his teaching more than his tricks we also know that he has extreme reverence for christ we also know that he has extreme zeal for christ and at least if we take this passage at face value it seems as if he's got extreme love for christ It's like he's saying here in this passage, Oh, Jesus, you just don't even know. You just don't even know how much I love you. Man, I'd do anything for you, Jesus. There's no obstacle too great. There's no challenge too dangerous. I'll take anything on for you, Jesus. You just don't even know. Put it up on the board. Peter's got zeal. He's got love. But then Jesus responds, something else we can put on the board. Jesus responds with the promise that he'll deny him not once. Not twice, but three times. Another passage, Jesus also tells him in this moment, another gospel, tells us that in this moment, Jesus tells him, he says, Satan has demanded to have you, Pete, that he may sift you like wheat. So what we know from what we considered over here with Judas, he's got a bullseye on his back, Remember? It was already in Satan's heart that he was going to use Judas. He's got a bullseye on his back. It sounds like Pete's got a a bullseye on his back as well. You don't even know how much I love you, Jesus. You don't even know. You're about to betray me three times. You don't even know, Pete. Satan has demanded to have his way with you. Satan has demanded to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. You got a bullseye on your back, also, my boy. Let's turn to John chapter 18 and find out what happens. John chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. This is after Christ has been apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's been arrested. All the other disciples fled, whoosh, ran off. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Pete, you don't even know how much I love you, Jesus. You just don't even know. That Pete stood outside at the door. He's scared. is scary tonight. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Pete, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not servant girl, scary servant girl. This is a frightening night. You just don't even know how much I love you, Jesus. You just don't even know. That same Pete. I am not Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. You can see him right now. He's thinking, please, nobody see me. I'm invisible. I'm invisible. Nobody pay attention to me. What's going on with Jesus? Look down at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. There he is, back again. So they said to him, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Three denials. Put him on the board. Bam. One, servant girl, I'm scared of the servant girl. I am not. Two, somebody else asked him around the fire. Three, a relative of the guy whose ear he cut off asked him, I am not. Three denials, and then the cock crow. Sure enough, just like Jesus said, put it on the board. Now, I want to contrast something. Judas and Peter is where we're going this morning. These guys have similar pictures. If you're really taking it in, some of the details are different. The character of how they engage Christ is different. But some of the details are strangely and frighteningly, frighteningly familiar. Judas is betraying Christ. Peter is denying Christ. Judas has a bullseye on his back. Peter apparently does too. He wants to have his way with you and sift you like wheat. These guys are frighteningly familiar, yet they have two very different outcomes. We're going to look at Paul Harvey's rest of the story for both of them here in just a second. But I want to show, I just want to acquaint you just briefly. I'm going to explode this in a second. But I want to show you just briefly the difference between these two. It's found back in chapter 13, verse 18. It's a passage we've been reading for weeks, but it is such a key, important passage. It may be a shiny plane to some of you. Verse 18. Jesus has just encouraged them, wash each other's feet, do as I have done. And he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What he's saying right there, he's differentiating between those who are chosen and the one who is betraying him. So what I want you to appreciate is that is the singular reason that the rest of the story is different. That this is so different. Over here with Judas, the end of the story, Paul's Harvey end of the story, is vastly different from the end of the story over here. And that singular difference is because Judas is not chosen, Peter is chosen. Let's look at the rest of the story. Matthew chapter 27. Let's look at Judas's end. <coughs> Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. This is a parallel version of these final hours of Christ's life, pre-cross and up until the cross. Jesus is delivered over to Pilate there in the first couple of verses, and then there in verse 3. And when Judas, his betrayer... Remember the guy we've got over here, this board, all these things that we've learned about him? When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind... That word there is the word regret. He regretted what he'd done. He said, oh man, what have I done? He changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us, Judas? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. So put it on the board over here, Judas. That's the end of the story for Judas. In some of these crime movies, when they find out somebody's dead, they take a red marker and they put a big big X through them. Put the X for Judas. End of the story. Deceased, hung himself by his own hand. Overwhelmed with guilt and regret, he returns the money and he kills himself. And while he swings over here, Peter lies over here. He denies Christ before. Little servant, maiden girl. And he denies him two more times and then the cock crows while he swings over here that's judas's rest of the story let's consider peter's rest of the story john chapter 21 this is getting so good oh man this is so good you should have been there so good john chapter 21 Starting in verse 1. Let's bathe in the end of Peter's story. It's not really the end of the story yet because Peter lives for a long time after this. Or not not a long time. I don't know how long. He ends being likely being crucified. So the story is death also, but death to life over here. But let's just consider in context what happens over here. Listen to this. Verse 3. of chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus has been crucified, he's risen, and he's revealing himself to different people over the course of time. And this is one of those accounts. Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called a twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter says to them, "I'm going fishing." You ever heard anybody say that? I don't mean, "Hey, man, let's go fishing." I mean somebody that's just at a place of despair and brokenness. I'm going fishing. You might have heard people say their version of it: "I'm going shopping." I'm going to the kitchen. I'm going to the hamper, or not not the hamper, the uh, that's the dirty clothes. Keep dirty clothes. <laughs> the kitchen cabinet. I'm going fishing. That's Peter's version of, man, I'm so bummed. I denied my Lord three times. He told me I would. I heard the cock crow, and I'm still unreconciled with my Lord. I know he's risen. I'm excited about it, but I'm unreconciled. So Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. So the others said to him, we'll go with you, Pete. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No! That's what people say when they've caught nothing. No! (laughs) We're empty handed we fished all night. No, we have nothing. So he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, Pete, it's the Lord. Look at what zealous Peter does. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself in the sea. You can see him just kind of flinging himself in the sea. I can't wait for us to paddle in. (laughs) I'm swimming. He may, he may have dog paddled. He may not even been a good swimmer. I'm swimming. I've got to get to my Lord. The other disciples, however, came in the boat. I just love the way John put that in there. Thank you, John. The other disciples came in the boat, but not Peter. And they're dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. Who made that charcoal fire and that fish? Our Jesus did. He prepares breakfast for them. And there's bread. And Jesus said to these broken hearted guys, he said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter, still sopping wet, hops aboard and hauls the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. For those of you who love reason, breakfast and need a reason to love breakfast, that's a good one. Jesus says, come have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And listen what happens now. This is one of the sweetest parts of the story. we got to put this on the board. We could put on the board that Peter would rather swim than paddle as he flings himself into the ocean, but we can put this next interchange on the board also. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, I just can't imagine that he wouldn't have some body language too, some, un, some nonverbal communication. Pete, psst, come here. I need to talk to you. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And this same Peter who said, you just don't even know Jesus. This same Peter that says, I do not. I do not know him. This same Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Pete, follow me. The difference in the ends of these two stories lies back in John chapter 13, verse 18. Go back there again. John chapter 13, verse 18. While Judas' body is rotting in a field, Peter is restored on a seashore by his Lord, the very Lord that he denied over a fresh fish breakfast. That's a man breakfast. They ought to have that at Cracker Barrel. Fish for breakfast? You kidding me? That is a man breakfast. But the difference in the outcomes of this one ending in a big red circle with a line through it, dead, deceased at his own hand, and this ending in restoration, sweet restoration, by the seashore over an open flame, fish for breakfast. Do you love me? Three times restored, three times denied, three times restored restored the difference in outcome between this and this is back in chapter 13 verse 18 i'm not speaking of all of you i know whom i have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me that is the difference in outcomes it's not that peter ate a better diet as a kid it's not that peter took vitamins and judas didn't it's not that peter was homeschooled and judas went to public school It's not a method issue. It's not that Peter came from a nice, sweet, safe, comfortable, God-fearing home, but Judas didn't. The difference in outcomes, the ultimate factor in whether or not people stay or leave the table is this shiny plane to some of us, this sweet, incredible truth to many of us that this is God's sovereign choice. It's not a method issue. It's not a design issue. He chose Peter and he did not choose Judas. Remember, I begged you this morning to let the word shape your mind, not let your mind mutilate the word. It's right here before us. Don't go get your bow and arrow just yet. I want to show you a few passages and actually I just want you to listen. I'll give you the references, but I'm going to turn there quickly. I want to show you that this is not this choosing issue of choosing Peter and not Judas, it's not just an issue of disciple stuff. There's the potential to think, well, he's just talking about him being a disciple. He chose this disciple to do this and chose this disciple or didn't choose this to disciple, so he served this purpose. I want you to see that God is not just about that. In this single instance, this is not the only singular issue having to do with God's sovereign election, God's choice. It's all over our Bibles. Here's some snapshots. I'll give you the reference, but I'm going to be turning quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. God says, for you are a chosen people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. These are the words that he is speaking to the original Israel. R- realize, we are the new Israel. He's speaking to the original Israel. And this people among all nations of the world, he says, you, you are a people, holy, holy. To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He said it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath. God has been choosing since the beginning of the age. He chose Abraham, he's chosen this unique, insignificant people called Israel. Now I'm going to start moving quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm chapter 33, verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Sounds like David is acquainted with this picture of choice also. Psalm 105, verse 6. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. It's all over our Bibles. This is just a little sampling. Here's one of my favorites in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. This is a vision where Zechariah has a vision of the high priest Joshua before the Lord in the throne room. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan's saying, Guilty. Joshua and this nation of Israel are just as wicked as the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Parasites. They're all guilty. And this guy, Joshua, and the nation of Israel is guilty as well. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Isn't Israel a brand that I have plucked from the fire? They're on fire too. You ever picked up a brand? They're hot. A brand that's in the fire is supposed to be in the fire. But this brand, this brand through God's sovereign election that's all over our Bible, this sovereign choice, this shiny plane to many of you, he reached in the fire and said, nope, this one is mine. I'm going to display my grace and my mercy with this brand It says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. He's filthy. He's on fire just like the rest of the brands in the fire. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. Even give him a new hat. Clean Joshua and the nation of Israel up because they're my chosen people. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14 is a parable. The parable is about this very thing, God's sovereign election, God's choice. It ends with these words, many are called, few are chosen. I understand if that terminology is difficult for you. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. There's a few passages I want you to actually see. Colossians chapter 3 is the first of three. I want you to actually get your eyes on. While you're turning there, I'll share a couple others with you. There's Romans chapter 11, verse 5, where God is talking about a remnant chosen by grace. He's speaking of the believing remnant of Israel, chosen by grace. In chapter 16, verse 13, he's getting to the end of the book of Romans, and he's kind of ending with that, hey, say hi to Bill sort of passage and he says hey say hi to rufus chosen in the lord it's all over our bibles colossians chapter 3 verse 12 put on then church at colossia just put greenville in there put on then greenvilleites as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassion kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another Turn to First Thessalonians chapter one, just a couple actually one page over. Chapter one, verse four. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and he says, "For we know, brothers, we know green velites loved by God, that he has chosen you." There it is again. We're not pulling something out of context. It's all over our Bibles. Our Bibles are saturated with language of choice. That he has chosen you, believers in Thessalonica, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. If you're wondering as you're hearing this message unfold, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? That's a pretty good test right there. Here's how Paul says to these guys, here's how I know that you're chosen because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You didn't just go, oh, yawn. When's Paul going to be done? I'm so hungry. The word hit them with full conviction. That's how they knew. That's how Paul knew that they were his. That's how Paul knew that they were among the chosen. Here's the last passage I want to show you in 1 Peter. Chapter 2. These words from the very guy that we have on the board over here, the guy that we got acquainted with, the guy that denied Christ three times, the guy that also had a bullseye on him, but the guy that was restored over a fish dinner on the seashore. Peter says these words in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you guys, believers all over the, the Roman Empire... Now here's what I would expect. For some of you who are sitting here in this message before, this uh, this sort of message has come up probably four or five times in the life of our church. It comes up when it's in the next verse. We're not on an agenda about pushing something down people's throats. We want this Bible to define how we think and what we believe. We don't want to come to the Bible with what we think. We want this to define what we think. Even if the rest of our community, or even if the, maybe especially if the rest of the world says, no, I don't like that. But this is probably the fourth fourth or fifth time that we've engaged a message like this. And I understand if the terminology of choice is just a little bit unsavory to you. If you're thinking right now that I'm preaching an ism, then you've missed it, because I'm no ist. If I'm an ist, I'm a biblicist. I don't study John Calvin. I don't study Martin Luther. I'm grateful for those guys because it's because of those guys that I'm not wearing a pointy hat this morning and waving around incense. I'm thankful for them because we now have a biblical, a word driven faith that's not, we don't have to sit at somebody else's feet to get it. You can dine on it yourself. I'm thankful that this word has been translated into many, many, many languages because of those guys that are a dirty word in this community, like John Calvin. If he's a dirty word to you, you just need to read what he has to say. He's a remarkable man. But he's not who I follow. I'm a biblicist. And it's all over our Bibles. If it's unsavory to you and you think I'm preaching an ism, or if you think I'm an ist, You need to stick around long enough to see there's no agenda around here except the next verse. We're going to let the next verse define who we are, what we believe, how we operate, how we understand the gospel, how we present the gospel. There's no agenda. Agenda Agenda-free zone. But I understand if that terminology is unsavory to you. If it sounds proud, I'm about to show you something to kind of settle that. If it sounds proud to you, or if God seems unfair in it at first blush, I beg you not to shoot arrows at a wonderful plane. If you're offended by me likening you to the tribes right now, the the just now identified tribes, I don't mean to, to offend. I just urge you to consider. Maybe you're engaging a truth that you've never engaged before. And maybe it's scary. And maybe it's shiny. And maybe it's loud, and you don't understand it. But I urge you, eat this book, and you'll find it's all over it. And in fact, the very thing that you may think that it paints God as unfair at first blush, you'll find that it's incredibly merciful. You'll find that our God is incredibly graceful in choosing anyone. I beg you not to shoot arrows at this plane just because it's foreign or unfamiliar or scary. Now I'm going to end with three things this morning. Three brief things. What's true of God's chosen if guys like Peter are among them? Three things. These are sweet. The first one is especially sweet. To those who think that embracing a God-driven salvation and God-choosing is putting that place, that person in place of, hey, look at me, I'm one of the chosen. If you've been listening the last few weeks, you realize that I I wouldn't say I'm one of the chosen because time will tell if I'm chosen. If I'm sitting at the table at the end of the day, when, when the music stops, if I'm seated at the table, that'll be the tell. Between now and then, I hope and pray, man. I'm clinging to Christ. But you don't know it. You don't know my heart. But what's true of God's chosen if guys like Peter are among them? Here's the first one. This is so sweet. Lessons we can learn from Peter is, first of all, that God's chosen, fail him, and show their behinds royally. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Fling myself in the ocean. Try and swim 100 yards. You know you can go 100 yards faster in a boat than you can swimming. I just wonder if everybody else didn't get to the shore before Peter. <laughs> Wouldn't that just be like Peter? Oh, man, what a knucklehead. I just love him to death, though. God's chosen, fail him and show their behinds royally. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So if anybody thinks that a message that is putting God as the saver, God as the chooser through and through, puts us in a place of, hey, I'm going to get a bumper sticker made it says, Chosen. I'm going to give me a hat, chosen, tattoo, chosen. You ought to get a tattoo that says instead, foolish one. And maybe one over here, weak one. I hope and pray I'm one of the foolish ones. I hope and pray that he's chosen me as one of the foolish things in the world to confound the wise. The second thing we can learn from Peter is that God's chosen are naturally proud and they need to be humbled. God's chosen are naturally proud, and they need to be humbled. Pride comes by nature. (laughs) You don't have to work at it. It's like teaching a kid to say, mine. You don't have to teach them to say that. Or no. It comes easy, and pride's the same way. And God's chosen are naturally proud, and they need to be humbled. And he, I promise you, will orchestrate the conditions to humble you. Just pay attention when he's doing it. Paul was given a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble humbled he begged to be liberated from that thorn please take this thing away God said no I'm you gonna keep it uh, he probably didn't have that face. that's my facial expression I don't want to give you an image of God sitting around like this I don't think he doesn't have a face anyway really open a can of worms there but God said no I'm not taking that thorn away because it's going to keep you from exalting yourself Paul you need that thorn Because it will humble you. God orchestrated the events for Peter to be humbled so that he could be used. Lastly, this is, man, this is the sweetest. This is where the perseverance of the saints comes from. This is where, if you're his, you can't be plucked out of his hand comes from. This reality that God won't lose his chosen. John chapter 18, it says, Of those you have given me, I have not lost one. Man, I want him to be the saver. Because if he's the saver, then he's the keeper too. If it's up to me to stay in his hand, I'm done. I'm done. I'm thankful that he's the saver, that he's the chooser. He's the keeper. That's good medicine. If you're like me... If we're like Peter at all, (laughs) that's good medicine. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's good medicine. Let me end in prayer. Let me encourage you before I pray. Sometimes I have folks that have been walking with us for a long time that say, Man... You sure we're trying hard to kind of make people okay with these truths. And I'm totally okay with them, so don't try so hard. You need to realize there's some people that are hearing these sort of God-centered salvation issues for the first time. I'm not trying to push anything on you. I just want to present the truth. And I want you to believe it. I want your mind and your belief and your faith and your practice and your worship and your wonder to be shaped by the truth right there that's what i want and i will implore you not argue with you i won't argue with you there was a time where i probably would have but i i will implore you to just believe it believe it even if you don't like it that's where i began a few years ago when i start to see this thing in john developing i'm like man i don't like this But I committed to preach verse by verse through the book of John. And when I committed it early on, I said, okay, I'll believe it as it hits me. Even whatever violence it does to me and to what I've always believed. I committed to that. And I beg you to live in that place where this word shapes it. Whatever violence it does to you. Because we'll walk away with the truth. Because I hope you know the truth is outside of you. I'm thankful it's outside of us. I urge you that if you're struggling or troubled with some of the things that you've heard, please approach me or one of the elders or one of our teachers. Please. It is not an offense to me to be questioned about what I've taught or preached. I hope I can give an account for what I'm teaching and preaching. I hope that I can stand up to your scrutiny. It will not be offensive to me. It won't hurt my feelings. In fact, it makes me realize that you paid attention. And it makes me realize that you're wrestling with truth. If you never wrestle with anything, then you must already know everything. It's okay to wrestle. But you wrestle in community. Reach out to somebody and wrestle. Bring your Bible, though. Because that's going to be the reference. Let me pray. Lord, we just want to make much of you I want to pray for those who are here this morning who may be engaging um, your sovereign election, your choice for the first time and reckoning with the implications of that, trying to wrestle with what it means, trying to fit it or reconcile it with what we've been taught from God, Christ-adoring people. And Lord, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will sort all this out. I pray that if there's anything that I've communicated that's, that, that, that deviates from the truth, that it will just be forgotten. But I pray that if the truth has been exposed today, that it will keep people up at night, that it will make people toss and turn, that it will make people have actually maybe some fear and trembling for the first time. I pray, Lord, that it might make us a little bit more needy and dependent and clingy. And desperate, as we lock arms with each other, and as we kneel at the foot of the cross, and as we put Your Word in our mouths and gnaw on it, Lord, I pray. Rather than creating a bunch of people that are just kind of relaxed and laying back on flowery beds of ease and saying, oh, "God, You're going to do what You're going to do," that'll actually create a bunch of desperate people that are clinging to Christ. I beg for that, Lord. I'm thankful that You are the savior and I'm thankful that you're the keeper. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship in song.